And I want to open the show today with something very sad, which is that we lost someone who is very dear to the clubhouse community this week. And it it's really kind of wiped me out because it was just, uh, I, I think, as far as I know, that it was a death that should never have happened. The name of the person, if you've ever been in his rooms on Clubhouse, you would have seen Fox X Lion. But if you had looked at him in real life, he was um, Jin Yu, and he caught COVID. And even though after, actually, he waited for a while to go to the hospital. And by the time he went to the hospital, he was so sick that he immediately went to intensive care. And from intensive care, he was put on ECMO. And after um, uh, nine days on ECMO, um, he was taken off by his family. And he died peacefully with all of us, um, actually, <laughs> in a room saying, we love you, Jin, we love you, Jin, and hoping he could hear us say goodbye. And for some reason, this really wiped me out because my my goal is always to teach compassion, empathy, and kindness. And this was a man who already embodied that. And I feel so bad um, that we lost him. And I just wanted to call that out and say that um, to, to I, I don't, I mean, not to, not to console anybody for the loss of him, but I'm going to give out free karma this week, karma coins, to anybody who wants, needs, or just feels like having one. If you go to rally.io, you will find that I have a social token there called the karma coin. And the whole goal of the karma coin is to pay it forward. And so, you know, it, it has a... It has a slight value. It's worth about, I don't know, this morning, a dollar and 20 cents. But I will send you one just to remind you of, of Fox Lion and what a wonderful man he was and to have something to remember his memory. I know I'm not doing a good job at this, but, you know, grief is grief doesn't make anybody more articulate it usually makes people less articulate and when you when you lose a good person who is a, a young person um it's hard but if you want a free rally coin to remember him by rally.io and then send me your username and i'll send you a coin okay now on to the subject at hand which is how we amplify diverse voices on Clubhouse. And um, 
I want to hear from you guys about how to do that because um, you'd be the voices I would want to amplify. And I, first of all, are we doing a good job of amplifying diverse voices right now? For that matter, is anyone doing a good job on any social media? Oh, yes, because right. I was just came from after we vote. And on after we vote, it was brought up by Shireen, who I wish were in the audience. Shireen was basically saying that um, Facebook makes things completely uncomfortable for marginalized coders. And therefore, their algorithms and the algorithms of other social media platforms reflect the, the uh, predominantly white, we're black for the blacks, the predominantly white background of the people who make the algorithms. So that is an interesting point that until we get into the artificial intelligence behind some of these social media platforms, uh, we can't really amplify them. Or at least it's not easy. Yeah, um, this is Black for the Black speaking. Yes. So I think it's a, I think the issue is bifurcated. Um, one is the silencing of certain voices um, and the amplification of problematic or racist, homophobic, transphobic. Um, the amplification, it, it's given space to grow and to harm more people. And then the people who are telling truth that are that are you know, saying, hey, this is who I actually am, or hey, this thing is out there, we are actually the ones being silenced. So it's, it's actually two different issues um, that, that to me come to the same root, which is that some, some individuals or people um, are privileged more than others um, and, and have an ability to, to navigate spaces um, with, that, with impunity or um, they are they are they are deemed a liability because of the the truth that they speak and the solution that they seek. So it's two separate issues, um, all unfortunately um, resulting in the same <laughs> having the same result, which is that some people are are disproportionately impacted in a negative way. Yeah. Uh, Ash Ashley and Linda, I invited you up at the beginning, and I was hoping to find out who you were before I asked you if you wanted to contribute. So let's do that now. Uh, let's start with Ashley, who on mic. Hi, it's so nice to meet you. I'm actually an online educator. I was a classroom teacher for 10-ish years. Um, and now I'm just in the online space and on Clubhouse just to kind of learn, listen to different views. I listen to you guys in a lot of rooms. Um, really opened my eyes to a lot of issues and also um, really makes me hopeful in sharing some of the same ideas and beliefs on a lot of the issues that you guys discussed. So thank you for inviting me up. Oh, a pleasure. And feel free to feel free to contribute 
any time. Um, Club Club Deck, which is this non-clubhouse-related desktop app, is wonderful in that I can see when you unmic because it gives me very easily because it gives me a little red microphone signal. Linda, I don't want to force you to speak, but I'd like to know a little bit about you. Hi, thanks for inviting me up. I don't really have much to say uh, at this point in time. I was mostly going to listen, although I am expecting uh, uh, a text at any time uh, from a friend that I need to connect with, but so I might be leaving quickly. But um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I've been exploring Clubhouse, and it's there's a lot of um, there's a uh, a lot of good rooms to be going into, um, and there's some that I frankly just there's a lot that I frankly just avoid, you know, for various and sundry reasons, and. Um, so I'm I'm old and I'm opinionated. So that's kind of <laughs> it about me. <laughs> Guess what? Guess what, Linda? You've come to the right place. I'm older and I am more opinionated, and and I value that in people. But I also like to make everybody's opinion heard comfortably. And, oh, Shireen, I'm so glad you showed up. I was just talking about you and talking about how the way Facebook has created its hiring culture and the way it has uh, made it uncomfortable. For Why don't you tell us what you were just telling us? Oh, do you want, do you want me to tell? You can tell it, Francine. I can just give you some backup. No, you do it. It's your it, it's your it's your <laughs> story, and I, you know, I, I, it belongs in here perfectly. Uh, so, as I was sharing in another room um, about some of the challenges that Facebook is having, um, there was a suggestion that there needs to be more there needs to be more scholarships, more coders, more this, more diversity here, more inclusion more perspectives about how uh, applications should be designed. And uh, I found it very fascinating because I've been trying to do that since I was 10 years old. Um, I'm quite a few decades past that. <laughs> um, quite a few. Um, and, uh, I've, I've, you know, in terms of the industry in, in general, but Facebook in s- specifically, uh, that has always been met with um, countermeasures in, in one form or another. Um, the, the challenges in terms of numbers has not changed. I actually, I'll PTR the other article that I'm in, um, from USA Today, who's collected the data, uh, over the years of who actually is working at these tech companies, who's in managerial positions, who's in lower end positions and what those, uh, uh, diversity ratios are, um, and they're, they're few and far between. I would say that on average... Define uh, measures, Shireen. That was, an, that was an interesting sort of coded word that you just used. What was, say, uh, say that again. I'm sorry, Francine. Say that again. Well, you, you, said counter, you said countermeasures. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like what we're dealing with right now. Now, now they want to take away diversity training, right? They want to take away any conversations about uh, challenges uh, in, in, in the uh, 
in in the in the workplace. They want to change diversity to the term diversity of um, ideas, diversity of politics, as if those are the same or equal levels. Um, the countermeasures are really interesting framing um, the you know the ways in which which we do work on online harassment uh, and, and 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 the like uh, in terms of targeting and how that happens you know out of work um, to intimidate people about what they decide to do at work um, how people's information has gotten shared I won't even get into that because I we have, we've had to deal with those types of situations. People who were pushing to have more diversity in the workplace were doxxed and threatened <laughs> outside of work. Uh, there, I have so many different stories. So when I say countermeasures, I mean very specific. And you mean very, countermeasures. I mean countermeasures. Yeah, but I, I, I always have a, maybe because of my age, I, I always have a, a larger perspective on this. It's not that we want diversity in the in these companies or in our in our workplaces or in our lives for diversity's sake. You know, it's not like a number. To me, it's not like a numbers count. To me, it's a it's an experience count. It's a what can I learn if everyone I know is 80 white and lives in Phoenix, Arizona? And the answer to that is very little. But when I come on a place like Clubhouse that has such a large and diverse population, I learn something every day. Not all of it is pleasant, I admit, but I learn something every day. You know, so it's like, it's like I want to create a culture where diversity is cherished for its, uh, and I don't know how to put it, for its internal intrinsic value. You know what I mean? And I have one anecdote. It's a very teeny anecdote, but it says everything to me. I got on Clubhouse and I met Rebecca for the Blacks. And I was, I, I thought that I was mentoring her, okay, when I started out. She asked if I would help her get a show. And I said that, you know, that I would try. And so I thought that I was mentoring Rebecca. And one day we had a Zoom call or a Facebook Live or some, you know, video call. And Rebecca was wearing the most amazing pair of glasses. I had ever seen. Now, admittedly, this is a small thing, but when when you're old and um, and you're trying to be viable and have a brand and exist in a world of 35 year old content creators, you know, almost anything helps. And so I said to Rebecca. Um, Rebecca for the Blacks, <laughs> where did you get those glasses? And she said, oh, they're on guilt. And the next time I, and I didn't really know what guilt was. And, and she said, the next time I see a link, 
I'll send it to you. And so she did. And I bought the glasses and I wear the glasses and I've worn the glasses. Even I've worn the glasses when I went to London and everybody who sees the glasses is like, those are the best glasses. Those are such cool glasses. Your glasses rock, blah, 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 blah. And I, and as a result of this, I have become very close friends with Rebecca, and I've learned how much she knows and I don't about so many things. And I would have missed this opportunity. You know, I just would have missed it. And and now I've I've had it. And, you know, Again, when you get to a certain age, you know, you either think you know everything, in which case you die inside, or you learn how little you know, in, in which case um, you cherish every person like Rebecca for the Blacks who spends time with you and tries to put you in a, in a different space. So that is my pan to Rebecca for the Blacks. <laughs> who I bladore. Wow. I think, I think, oh, go, go, Shereen. Go, 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 Shereen. Just go. I, I think that was an amazing story because the, the, the thing that I don't think people realize is that they're moving in places and spaces with their own culture intact and their own point of view, their own background, right? What happens is that when, when they're in an environment that is exactly that, they see no difference. They don't see any nuances and they think that the world should only exist that way. When you meet other people, other cultures, um, there's a couple things that have to happen. You have to shift your own co uh, comfort zones. Um, but if you can't shift your own co uh, comfort zones and you reject those people or you try to, or you try to shift those people into your culture, then that's where we're having this, clash of diverse voices where you're trying to silence other people's perspective or 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 the way they were raised um and this can get complicated because i know we can get into political debates about this but there is a difference about um debates where you're trying to uh remove the identity of whole swaths and groups of people just so that your existing identity can stay unchecked and unbothered and to me that's a distinct difference um not even with just in terms of um the, uh, the clubhouse spaces as well as the tech spaces or even the political spaces it's like when your process is to remove someone else's uh, identity or, or culture um that, that we're that that we're struggling with how to understand what diverse voices really look like Shreen, to that point, this is Heyman. Um, I'm wondering, like, when you when we talk about diversity, um, we you know we talk about I guess oftentimes it's the the visual part, right, or the thing. We never talk about the cultural part because even if you are diverse, you could have the same cultural experiences, right? I've noticed, like, some of my friends from different backgrounds, we can relate in certain things. Like, we may understand, um, for instance, uh, we like a certain uh, you know type of music or something, right? And that doesn't mean that we're uh we're amplifying diverse voices does it mean that or i mean just curious like how do we go beyond oh i like this person because they like this right and really push hard and say let's really get diversity into our uh, networks into our uh, lives because 
you know, there's, I think there's a fear of sort of, uh, you know, there's that, like, it's like oil and water feeling like it's like, oh, no, you know, it's, it's a bit hard. Maybe we'll find someone who's like similar to us. But sometimes you need to push beyond that. That's what I am wondering. Well, this is what I think. Um, I think that you start with the one thing that you can, you know, and I, I'll, I'll go back to Rablacka for the Blacks again. You go back to the one um, thing, value, that you share, which is the love for this pair of... I know it sounds trivial, but it isn't. For me, it's hugely symbolic because it opened a door you know, to a lot of different things about um, the culture that I had never even had to think about before because, of course, I live in Phoenix. So I don't have to confront things the way uh, Rablaka for the Blacks does. And I, I guess you start with one small piece, Eamon, you know, where you can meet the other person on common ground. And, and then, and maybe, uh, Dr. Terry, this is your space, really, isn't it? It's, it's radical empathy. <laughs> you, you, you meet the other person in, in one, you know, place, and then you branch out from there. Yeah, but I would say that, you know, for me, radical empathy is also about starting with yourself and understanding where you're starting from so that you have a better context for reaching out to others. Um, and but yeah, I, I think that part of it, a big part of it is not just saying I'm going to be, have empathy for this person and then you know, kind of follow the golden rule. I'm going to treat them the way I want to be treated. It's treating them the way that they want to be treated and making sure that I call that, you know, that's called the platinum rule. Um, but, you know, in these spaces, you know, I find, you know, actually, I, I feel like I've been able to find some good spaces, especially following you and, and Dr. Francine and Rablaka and other people who, are, who really do try to be open to different perspectives and, and so on. And so I'm very, you know, the way I get through social media is just to be very, you know, focused. And, you know, when I find a space isn't, and I, there are some spaces I've left because I didn't find them to be open to different perspectives. And, um, but I do feel like I have found kind of the right spaces. And like you said earlier, Dr. Francine, that's following people like Rablaka and, and, you know, Shireen and, and others. So I, I think that's worked for me. But it's remarkable because I have gone into, for instance, uh, politics and media 101, you know, which is the, the room where Justin, whose avatar is um, free to disagree or something. Agree like to that. disagree. Yeah, agree to, you know, something like that. But, but, you know, I go in those rooms and I listen to people who, you know, represent uh, uh, former members of the Trump administration or the Bush administration, just a lot. And I get in those places, and because I, I go in them, I think about things in a way that I would have never uh, thought about them before. And it, it's so, so it's interesting, you know. I, I would... Uh, I would encourage people to 
rather than just move into the echo chamber of people they feel comfortable with, you know, like, like, I don't know, uh, on Clubhouse, that's usually like after we vote, you know. Yeah, but, but, but actually, Dr. Francine, I would say, you know, I like Justin's room as well, because they're, you know, I mean, actually, it doesn't mean that I'm comfortable. <laughs> um, it just means that people are willing to, to, you know, at least listen and not get into these this back and forth that's not and, and I, I, there have been times in Justin's room where I wasn't particularly happy with the way the discussion went but you know I listen and so it's not about being in believe me being uncomfortable is one of the more important things I, I think we have to be willing to do it's just a question of is it a respectful space and uh, you know is it a space that I feel like I'm, I'm not going to get beat up on just because of you know, my identity and Dr. Givens, I'm curious also, is it also to the point that the um, moderator okay, should feel? Quickly, uh, this is Rebecca for the Black. So thank you so much, um, Dr. Francine, for that uh, touching anecdote. Um, and I say that for a very specific reason. So I do diversity training, nonprofits, corporate, all these different types of institutions and organizations and schools. And facts, um, the study, the research says that facts don't necessarily change people's minds. And if you can't change people's minds, you're not changing people's behavior. What does is storytelling. Our brains are primed for a beginning, middle, and end. And we're also primed for a happy ending. That is why Disney <laughs> became as profitable and ubiquitous um, as, it, as it has and continues to be. Uh, because that business model <laughs> is the brain. <laughs> And, um, and so you'll actually get more people to think about, oh, wow, I never thought about that from a story like yours, Dr. Francine, than me going through like five or 10 different charts and graphs and quoting X amount of studies and the, the, the truthiness factor doesn't necessarily change because look at the COVID, look, look at COVID vaccine, look at, look at, look at the mass mandates, like look what's happening right now. Facts don't necessarily change people's minds and behavior. Um, it's, it's really the feelings. So when I do diversity training, I talk about is the intersection of the facts and the feelings that will give the end result that, um, that we seek. Uh, and so when we think about diversity, you know, I think people are lazy. You know, like I wake up every morning and I'm, I, I'm constantly challenging myself. I'm putting myself out there. I'm saying things that I know people don't want to say, right? The third rail, uh, I'm, I'm constantly pushing the envelope. I was just on stage yesterday with the, 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 committee, the committee for racial justice equity in New York City. They're going to rewrite the charter. I'm talking in front of the, I'm talking to directly to the deputy mayor of all of New York City and this whole panel. And I, just, I said, you know, I'm paying the highest taxes in the country and it's taxation without representation. I'm a black woman in society and um, I'm paying for my, I'm, my taxes are funding my own oppression. I said that. Done. Right. So when we think about our lives, right, the beginning, middle and end of our lives, right, from the time we make up in the morning to the time we go to bed, we are primed for comfort and American culture is about comfort. There's a washing machine. There's a microwave. There's a sub-zero fridge that crushes the ice for us. Like we're not, our culture is not one that values discomfort. And so the discomfort um, in the cost-benefit analysis too often overrides the win. 
And so the story that you shared with us, Dr. Francine, was the win. As arbitrary as it seemed, this creative Black lady, you know, her goal is to have a TV show, to use humor to heal the racial divide, but it ended up being that you got this pair of glasses. But I have not- this friend. No, and I you got, have a friend. I right. got you have a friend. You have a friend is, and Fendi's. <laughs> oh, I do have those Fendi's. Yeah, no, don't tell yeah. anybody else what that site was. You can't because then that messes up the deal for me. <laughs> yeah. cannot, cannot minimize those Fendi's, but I yes, want to get out, the of, yes, I get out of the United States because I ran and you ran one of them with me, a couple of welcome rooms for people from all over the world who had gotten on Clubhouse when it first opened up. And um, and after this, I'm going to switch to something like PTR order so more people can speak. But I, I, I want to, I just want to say that we had people in that room from Libya, from South Sudan, from Turkey, from Japan, from all kinds of places. And you can imagine how comfortable they must have felt, you know, it, when most of them, English wasn't even their first language. And here they are, you know, willing to get on Clubhouse way out of their comfort zone in order to receive some, I, I don't know, it, perceived benefit, let's put it that way. For some of them, the perceived benefit was um, making their English better. But for a lot of them, it was friends and networking and broadening their horizons. And that too was one of those, you know, startling, though it should not have been, moments for me where I realized that, you know, that I'm spoiled because I don't, I don't have to get out of my comfort zone in order to, um, I don't know. I'm, I don't, I, I don't know. Never mind. Maybe I'm wrong. No, but, <laughs> but isn't that the point though? Like I think wondering if that's a good gauge, I'm, I'm wondering for the audience and as well as the stage, is that a good gauge to dis- determine if uh, that like the gauge of us being sort of uncomfortable with dealing with it, like either as a mod or as a leader, Feeling uncomfortable is the first sign that you're actually thinking about it and doing something. If you're not uncomfortable, that means you're basically preventing these conversations from happening. Like on stage, you've noticed on many stages, they are very selective about who comes on. And they immediately like move someone to the audience or after they speak. So it's like sort of not allowing for those diverse discussions to happen. I'm not talking about in terms of color or uh, visible minority, but even in discussion about diversity. It's just different. Yeah. Right. It's just different. Whereas I, I can honestly say that I have never blocked anybody and I, I'm not sure I've ever removed anybody from the stage unless it was a troll. Dr. Fran, you're sitting up here occupying the stage. Talk to me. Certainly. Hi, uh, Dr. Francine and Rebecca for the Black Singing Amen. Um, this is a very complex topic for me. I struggle with this a lot. I am in a very comfortable position, very similar to yours. Um, I'm an old white lady um, who lives in a, I'm a poor person who lives in a very affluent neighborhood. And, um, you know, what I don't talk about a lot is that when, you know, I just retired last year, but when I was working, I was working 
at one of the largest health systems on the East Coast. And I was the um, culture person for my hospital. Um, And I was designated as such. I was nominated by the CEO of the hospital. Um, And I taught diversity, like we're Blacker for the Blacks, always a very difficult thing for me. Um, the, the, there were very clear lines in my hospital. All of the administrative sa- staff, save one person, were white people. And all of the uh, psych attendants and uh, housekeeping were um, either African-American or um, Hispanic. You know, and, and so I would teach the classes for everybody in the hospital. And I would get a lot of, a lot of pushback rightfully so i i am very uncomfortable um you know i i think that um talking about racism is almost like talking about humility the second i say that i'm humble it usually means i'm not so i always am frightened to say i'm not racist because i don't know maybe i am you know and and these things these are like doubts that i struggle with and and you know and as Heyman said you know if you if you're thinking about it you might get uncomfortable and i do so um I, you know, I, I have found Clubhouse to be an antidote for a lot of this stuff. I have learned so much about different cultures, about different people. Um, I just, you know, I strive to keep my mind open. And as uh, my, you know, St. Francis is my, you know, my name is Fran, you know, to seek to understand rather than be understood. And um, I'm complete. That is so cool. Um, but why, why did I think you would be different? Greg? Yeah, I just want to add a, a thought. I mean, when you talked about doing, just about how assumptions work, when you talk about doing welcome rooms for people in places like Turkey and Saudi Arabia, um, those are highly, highly stratified societies. Uh, I spent almost a year living in Turkey. And the way someone of a certain status is able to treat somebody else of a different status is something that we wouldn't recognize in America, at least since, you know, for the last 50 years. Just the way, you know, people would treat tea girls in the office, even the fact that they had tea girls in the office. And uh, it's a peculiar thing about English. And one of the things that makes it the preferred business language is that we don't really have, at least anymore, we don't really have uh, formality sort of baked into the language. I'm sure uh, a a lot of people here took some, you know, high school Spanish or maybe know some some, uh, Italian where, you know, certain people are dressed as Don or Donna. Uh, in, in, in Slavic languages, it's, it's much, much more elaborate, the levels of, 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 uh, of, of formality, and certainly the types of behavior you're expected to exhibit in a place like Turkey or in a Hindu society. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people who sort of try and spend time in English-speaking environments uh, precisely because it makes them feel more comfortable because in their own language, their uh, the, the act of speaking it 
they need to show deference in the vocabulary they use to people of higher status. So I, I'm not trying to make any particular point, but I think it's an interesting one. It's an obs- it's an observation. That's that is true. And I never thought about that. But if you really think about the fact that language reflects how you see the world, you know, with your language reflects how you perceive the world. Um, we perceive the world with a lot less Shireen. Go ahead. I'm, I just want clarity so that I'm on the same page. Um, not only just in particular language. I mean, are you, are you referencing the frameworks like Romana or Romano or Nina, Nino? Uh, like, I just want to make sure that we're clear about what you mean about language, because I, I'm, I'm a little bit confused because we do have words that do that. History is very much a, a male centered word. Um, the, I mean, so I, I just, can I, can I? Understand? Yeah. So, so Romano, Romana, I mean, that would be masculine and feminine. And, and certainly we have that. We historically we've had words like ma'am, you know, or sir that that show some, you know, it's, it's not like we've never had that in English. Uh, I was talking in, in, in Italian or Spanish, uh, like Don Dona, where, where there is no equivalent for Don Dona. Um, but in, in most, in Latin languages, it's not that, I mean, there are, you know, there is like, well, there's a te and usted form. We don't have an usted form. Um, but Latin languages, it's not even particularly elaborate. The, uh, in the, the Polish, familiar, the familiar and the, the, f- the familiar and the for- formal. In, yeah. in other languages, it's, in Polish, you can tell exactly, uh, you, you could tell exactly what, what people's relationship is to, to each other. And it's, it's really, you know, there's, it's, there's maybe five or six stratifications in Polish, but in, in Polish, they do everything complicated. Um, it's, it's like in, in, in English, every time, like when our language evolved, every time we had two conflicting rules, we got rid of both of them. In Polish, they, they kept both of them. So po- Polish, like everything, is 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 much more complex, uh, and and formality being one of those things. But I was talking about the T and usted form, but also that would be sort of the simplest stratification. I hope that's enough. I, yeah, that it's an interesting point that um, why English got rid of genders and formality is because. Um, in early English, um, it was formed by Anglo-Saxon um, migrants to England coming from Germany. And then uh, the Vikings then uh, speaking a similar Germanic dialect, but it was different enough that to get rid of the confusion was to, uh, was to get rid of gender and formality. And it's ironic that English did this and just about every other European language still had some level of formality, you know, ways of addressing a young lady as opposed to an older woman, et cetera, et cetera, considering that England um, to this day still is riven by a, a class uh, society. 
but actually how the language uh, evolved was because the two of the most distinct components of it, Anglo-Saxon Germanic languages and then Germanic languages from, from Frisia and from Saxony were uh, different but still close enough that the way of getting rid of any ambiguity was to get rid of gender and formality. Yeah, I, I just want to push back and say, um, we still have those words, manhood, history. We have plenty of those words. Um, we may not be thinking about them in the same way because we assume what the words are supposed to represent. But I, I, I would I would disagree. I, I, I would say we still have a lot of shadow words. No, but, but I think, Serene, uh, I, I think you, you make a valid point. But compared to other and I'm just looking at Europeans, thinking about your other European languages, English is less so. That's not to say that it doesn't have any of those legacy issues to do with patriarchy or anything like that, but it's much less so than other comparable uh, languages, which it physically sits next to. That, that I think, is almost beyond a doubt. Okay, let's... Well, if I can super fast, I know we also have quite a few other uh, amazing people on the stage that even um, uh, guys, hey guys, even when we, we strive to say, you know, I'm done speaking, you know, just for accessibility issues, um, we have done nothing to stop the normalization of gendering, um, you know, groups of people. Hey guys. So when I do diversity training, ironically, the biggest issue <laughs> regardless of the institution is is not even race there, there it'd be like 40 minutes on gender pronouns and and me going through like instead of using hey guys you can say you all or hey team oh my goodness that that's always like the biggest because it's so um embedded in our culture and then also embedded in like the casualness of our culture hey guys that we don't even see it as being gendered anymore. It's like, it's just a less formal way of addressing a group of people. Oh, no, that'll be like one of the biggest things. And sir, and to say hi, sir, or hi, ma'am, um, even when you go to like, even when we're, we're, we're putting signs on bathroom doors, the same place that'll have signs on bathroom doors, they'll still greet you as hi, sir, hi, ma'am, because it's seen, it's seen as respect. So then it's, it, it's not seen as gendered. It's seen, so if you don't say sir or ma'am, then you're like, I'm disrespectful. It's like, well, no, there's other ways that you can still have respect without it being tied to a gendering um, uh, greeting. But, oh, that, that's like oh, <laughs> the chunk of my time that is spent on that. You'd be amazed. So it is an issue that I think is not, it's so, it, it's, it's like invisible, but it's, it's very much so there. So I don't know what the movement is on Clubhouse to, to stop the normalization of, hey, guys, but I would say to do it because I'm a woman and I'm, I'm erased every time. And that's what, it, that's actually what hey guys it's it's a, it is the default to men um that is the erasure of all other people in between okay so just raising that issue done speaking yeah but that's true that is true uh dwight welcome to the stage and the room hello dr francine and hello rebecca and Heyman and anyone else um, Talk to us. Uh oh. Dwight? Can you hear me? Yes. 
I'm You're sorry. good. Yeah. So Amplifying Diverse Voices on Clubhouse or otherwise, I'm always looking for uh, the other angle. That's kind of my thing. And when I saw this and, and listened to the conversation for a little while, what actually occurred to me was what we're really trying to do is uh, normalize having people hear stuff they don't want to hear. Because in a room like this, there's no problem amplifying diverse voices. There's any number of rooms and spaces that I go to on Clubhouse where there's no problem amplifying diverse voices in the sense that all the women get to speak, all the people of color of whatever nationality, of whatever disability, you know, everybody's there for that. So the amplification of the voices, and again, being being a male in a patriarchal society, I know I'm missing some people who still feel marginalized. So um, I don't want to pretend like, you know, this isn't a thing, but like I said, in the spaces where people are looking to do it, it's not a problem. It just becomes a problem when no matter what space you're in, I can be in this space. But if I come with um, a particularly jarring idea that most of the people aren't going to want to hear, then that's when I feel like my voice is going to be, um, you know, maybe muted or, or, or drowned out or, or or pushed aside or whatever. And, and I kind of understand and, and expect that because you know nobody wants to hear stuff that they don't want to hear. So I guess for me, the actual question in my head is how do I uh, continue to go about, and, and, and Rebecca said it earlier when she was talking about speaking to the, 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 the group of people in New York with the, with the you know, Lieutenant Mayor or the Deputy Mayor or whatever, you had to tell them something that they don't want to hear. Uh, they don't want this stuff being said out loud. They certainly don't want to be being said to their face. They certainly don't want to have to respond to it. But you have to be willing to say stuff like that in spaces where you know people aren't going to want to hear it and aren't going to want to respond to it. And, you know, to me, that's um, as much, if not more, of an issue uh, of just trying to amplify diverse uh, diverse voices. I've been a diverse voice all my life in every space I've almost every space I've been in since since high school in Atlanta. I've been you know one of the few black people, one of the few black males, um, and so my voice has always been the diverse voice. So the the need to amplify my voice, I guess I just you know because I was always in that space, it never occurred to me that I, there was a need for me to amplify my voice. I just always said what I wanted to say and let the chips fall where they may. Um, well, let's let's change the subject a little bit to a subject, and and thank God we don't have much time left. But I want you know, like, let's just say that diversity means um, anti-vax. You know, is is that what you mean about um, <clears throat> about amplifying diverse voices? What and and I'm just asking myself: Is that I mean? Is what do I mean by amplifying diverse voices when we get into something that personally I don't want to hear, like that somebody is not um, going to get vaccinated against COVID, and there may be in my child's class at school. Though I, I'm not sure whether that's a good. <laughs> comparison because i think that'll uh uh yeah no I, i'm just wondering whether there's a better example that we could use as well i think that's a great really go with it i love okay. it great yeah because i i i i go in these rooms 
And I know what I want to hear. I want to hear everybody say, I'm vaccinated, I'm vaccinated, I'm vaccinated. But that isn't what happens in those rooms. And in many of those rooms, and this is where it gets back to karma. In many of those rooms, people have really good reasons for the positions that they hold. It's not just misinformation or you know and we tend to we tend to um dismiss it as though it were disinformation or misinformation or fake news or whatever it's really a diversity of opinion about one's own body tony did you want to say something i'm i'm, I'm going to hear your thought out but i think i like this uh, version of diversity um, tell me more about how did that person come to that conclusion? Yeah, I, I want to hear you out. This is good. Yeah, this is, you know, this is also diversity on social media. And we there are a lot of places where people don't share opinions. And if we are going to amplify diverse voices, we have to and I've come to this over a lot of hard thought. Um, you can't just say, oh, don't go into those rooms full of blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe it's, you know, people who eat pork. Maybe it's it's anti-vax people. Maybe it's, um, I don't know, you know, should we, you know, maybe it's... Um, I don't want to cross the line because I, I don't think hate speech is something we should be amplifying. What if we make it even simpler? What if we make it uh, Trump supporters? I mean, we don't ever hear those words mentioned, right? But they were, yeah, from a Canadian perspective, I've seen like like nearly 47%, I think, voted for that, you know, the, the, the Trump supporters, right? So, right. Like that is a huge... Because it's basically the same group of people. Well, well, let's not, yeah, let's not generalize, but I'm just saying like, um, you know, I'm just thinking like that is sort of like sort of a click. I mean, it's, you know, during the whole Black Lives Matter movement also, there was that clash, right? People started comparing, oh, the Trump supporters versus the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. I'm, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I'm just wondering, like, is that the same or no? Well, and that's what I, that is the ethical quandary for me. And, you know, I, I, I want to know what makes a diverse voice willing, you know, something that we should hear as opposed to something that we we should all agree that we don't want to hear. And I, I don't I'm not saying I have an answer to this. The I'm only, just saying that, Yeah, the only yeah, reason I brought I, up the I got a suggestion. Go ahead, sorry, Dwight. Yeah, this is Dwight, and I have a suggestion because um, basically what you're talking about um, is are you going to allow that diversity of thought in your room? Because it's already allowed in the other spaces. You can go to a room full of anti-vaxxers, and they absolutely allow their position, and they won't allow yours. The question is, will you allow them to come here and be as vocal as they want to speak and say? And here's the thing. I think you should because once I like to think I would. Once you do that, you give yourself the room to then address their issues. And their issues aren't necessarily um, 
you, I'm not I'm not ever addressing their issues to them. I'm addressing it to all the other rooms, all the other ears around. Because that's what they're doing. They're not trying to convince themselves. They're trying to convince everybody else so they can then have a group of supporters that will be a community that, you know, they can lean on to say, okay, this idea has more supporters. All I want to do is see if we can peel off some of that support bit by bit for the things that I don't agree with. And and maybe I can find some places to agree with them. Yeah, if you don't mind. Sorry, if I don't mind. The the reason I said uh, let's not use anti-vaxxers is the fact that anti-vaxxers is not a cultural group right it's not a color it's not a religion it's not it's not a political way right it's basically um like misinformation and all that stuff so if we group them and it is different points of view no but if we group them as that right then we are basically making them like hold a circle their wagons and say yes i am and they like they get they hold on to this identity right that's what i'm scared about if you what, what do you do if you shut them down? You don't... You Not don't, shut them down. Hear them out, you definitely. Don't, you, or don't allow them in your room. Peter, you are unmuted. Yeah, I just want to jump in. And then one, thing, one thing I just want to be very clear, when, when we talk about we're, um, getting diverse perspectives, we should also be just aware of how we're centering that. And in different conversations, how some might come easier than others. So for Brilliant. example... How easy is it for us to center a conversation with a Trump supporter versus how easy is it for us to center a conversation around someone who's experienced racism? If we have someone who's a Trump supporter, we're like, oh, you know, we, we really want to understand you. Like, wow, like, okay, we really need to learn. Or the, it could be the anti-vax folks. We really need to understand this. But someone comes up here, someone comes on and they're like, I experienced racism. And we're like, are you sure you've experienced racism? Are you sure someone was being sexist to you? Are you sure about that? So just be aware that if we're willing to center, how we're centering voices matters and that we do do it differently towards different groups. And it is easier for particular groups who we think are oppressed, like, like say for example, the Trump supporters are very loud about their oppression. And we've like, as a society, like come to accepting somehow trying to interact with that. But there are other areas where we're not at all comfortable. And I think this gets back to the idea of comfort in that. And so there, we might center certain conversations because it's easier. And we, we also marginalize others because we're uncomfortable with it. Right. Uh, that, that is a very good point. And my jury, by the way, is out on all of this. Um, we have five more minutes. So Cherish, would you like to contribute something? Or Thomas, you haven't contributed anything. Yeah, Thomas? Hi, guys. Yeah. Hey, Jason. Yeah, thank you for, I saw you and I came in. So yeah, glad to be here and listening into the conversation. I actually wanted to jump in when you guys were talking about language uh, and also the topic of the room is about amplifying diverse voice, you know, the diverse voices. So when you're talking about language and giving voice, I'm literally talking about language as such. So today, you know, I, maybe I'll just give you that bit of a background about myself. I'm a blind researcher, activist, educator. So I also come from, uh, you know, I'm half Belgian, half Indian, but my Indian half is uh, from indigenous tribal uh, background. So I understand the language, how it works there in Western language. But, you know, I've done a lot of research about the census. And especially if you look at the language of the census, today we live in a visual culture that primarily relies on vision. And that kind of culture is very much reflected in the way we use language. And I think one of our speakers was talking about earlier about how heterosexual culture is represented in language. 
So language very much represents the culture of the body and the culture of the senses. So when she was talking about, you know, hey guys, that represents a heterosexual culture, you know, that thinks of uh, guys and girls, uh, men and women, you know, female and male, that kind of binary gender culture, heterosexual culture. So I'm coming from the, my research on the senses. We live in a visual culture that primarily relies on vision. But I think that's just one of our senses. Majority of human senses, 99% of human senses are non-visual. And we are not even acquainted with majority of human senses. When we talk about human senses, we know, we always mention we have like five senses, you know, sight, smell, hearing, touch, taste. Beyond that, I think there are very, very few people who know that we have more than five senses. And talking about that, you know, that kind of culture of the senses where we live today, you know, visual culture, culture where we put all our basket in one egg that is visual, view of the world. So we rely on vision so much. And that kind of visual view of the world, of the visual culture is also represented in our language. So language has so many words to describe visual experiences, but the voices for majority of human senses, non-visual senses, they are hardly any words or vocabulary for that. So in a way, in our language itself, depending on what kind of sensory culture we come from, dominant sense would be reflected in the language and the vocabulary. And majority of our senses, non-visual senses especially, they don't have a voice, they don't have a vocabulary, we don't have many words to express our non-visual experiences. So language in itself, you know, very much reflect the culture and what we want to give visibility to, like that of visual experience. And majority of human senses and their capacities are not given voices by the visual culture and visual language. So I think that's one of the elements of language that we have around the world, which nobody really talks about. I'm sad to say I'm one of the few people who's talking about it, but I think gradually we need to be aware that we have... 99% of the senses of human beings that remain largely, you know, waiting to be recognized and to be used. And that also requires giving expression to those experiences linguistically. So I think there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done to try to give expression to our senses in the linguistic sense too. And that will also allow us to, you know, give attention to the justice and attention to the experiences of our non-visual senses and begin to interact with them and begin to understand them, you know, understand them. And the more we understand and interact with our non-visual senses and experiences, we will also begin to gradually find language and expression for them. And that kind of a culture would change the way we understand language and the way we use language. And there will be a vocabulary for non-visual experiences. And that way they will also finally have a voice not just visual experiences, visual vocabulary for in a visual culture that has, you know, uh, given visual language priority, but we can begin to develop a culture of language which is multisensory, where we can give expressions to majority of our non-visual experiences in linguistics. Thomas, you are a gift to this room. Thank you. Thank you so much for showing up. Can I... Can can I also just just jump in just to say, Thomas, that, that thank you for that. And you have really underlined an experience which I had on this app about three weeks ago. Um, there's um, a guy on the app called Abdul Kamara who happens to be uh, without sight, and he asked, uh, and somebody was talking to him, 
and he was and he asked could you describe asia to me who asia was talking to him and how imprecise the language that was used by everybody who was cited trying to describe her and somebody said well she's pretty and said what does that mean well she had and it just went on and on and on and i had never been aware of how being cited we could be so imprecise with describing things because um we make up the gaps we, 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 we fill in the gaps with other people who are cited by saying, yeah, I kind of know what you mean because I'm looking at this thing too. When we were forced to describe somebody to somebody without sight, it really showed us how imprecise and how lacking we were in, in our language. So thank you for that, Thomas, because it's utterly something I'd never thought about being somebody who has sight when, when asked to describe somebody to somebody without sight. So, so thank you again. Um, okay. This is Chris speaking. Go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted. Um, if I could, I'm Chris. I'm from Blind Burners. I'm actually sighted, but we're a group of blind, partially sighted, and sighted artists and performers. And just loved hearing what you were saying, Thomas. Our obsession right now is challenging the assumption that virtual reality is a predominantly visual medium, and we're building our own sound-focused world in alt space VR for Burning Man. And um, just deeply interested in audio description. I come from a film background, and the challenges that the previous speaker mentioned about um, accurately capturing uh, experience is something that absolutely ob obsesses me. I'd, I've just arrived in the room, so I don't want to sort of derail, but I just, just came in just as you were speaking, Thomas, and loved hearing, hearing what you said as well as the speaker after you. So I'm going to, um, I'm Chris, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Actually, a couple of things I wanted to also point out, you know, I think, uh, uh, I think, Chris, it will be nice to get in touch. Actually, I'm one of those uh, developers of this uh, theory called Prehistoric Foundation of Visual Global Culture, Global Visual Culture. So it really traces the history of vision and why it became dominant over the years by replacing the functions of non-visual senses. So in a way, you know, visual culture is really essentially a colonial culture that replaced the functions of non-visual senses in order to become dominant. So there's a huge amount of work that needs to be realized, you know, to undo the uh, colonial dominance of visual culture because it has become problematic actually today because there's increasing number of people suffering from visual strains and stress because we are overusing vision. So I think that's one point. The other thing you guys were talking earlier about, you know, the person before you speaker was talking about Clubhouse. I just wanted to mention because you guys are talking here about, you know, giving amplifying voices of diverse people. Uh, so one of the a group of people, you know, that's really not being included in this kind of conversation we are having today. You know, I'm sighted, you are blind, you are sighted, you are sighted, I'm blind. But I think there's a huge a group of people that's not being included. And I suppose actually we should write to Clubhouse uh, to add some features for that. It's a deaf-blind community who are not included in this conversation. It would be nice to, you know, write, uh, ask for us to write to Clubhouse to say have a feature for interaction for deaf-blind people also to join the conversation. Otherwise, we are really locking them out from joining this such, you know, useful conversation like we are having right now. So I just wanted to point out. Um, Could we I'm just do a room taking this further next week. I I have a thing about hour-long rooms because of people's time, but I don't want this conversation to end. So if, if I promise you to create a room around uh, diverse sensory voices or some name like that, could we have that next week and have yeah. a discussion totally centered around that? I would love that. 
Yeah, and I'd be happy to catch one for me as an OT. Great. Okay. I want to go further. My, my dad was a blind veteran. So, I mean, what he said was amazing. And what, what he knows, Thomas, and I want to share with you, when you say a person sounds confident knowing that you're blind, it carries weight because we know that you capture everything else. Your words carry weight because in an audible app, we know you catch all the other intonations. So, again, when you speak, it speaks volume, and I lived it with my dad. So thank you so much, Thomas. Okay, so we're we're winding it up now, I or winding it down now, people. Notice I didn't say guys, but <laughs> love it. Next week, pe- people, we have a lot more to talk about in the in the way we see the world, and I I will create a different room from the room I intended to create. Because that room can wait. I want to finish this conversation. And Thank you so much. And I'll Every- give closed captioning too for anyone visually impaired. We could arrange that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And thank you so much, everybody, for coming and for sharing <laughs> your, your wealth with us. Thank you all for joining. Um, this was Karma Club with uh, Dr. Francine Hardaway. Welcome to Karma Club with Dr. Francine Hardaway. Today's show is about amplifying diverse voices on social media platforms. It's August 12th, 2021. Please join us for the conversations.